to WZBC 90.3. We're hosting a special program, Rivers and Rhythms, focusing on the work of Sam Rivers. That was all music from the 1964 Blue Note recording, Fuchsia Swing Song, Sam's debut as a leader. Uh, we heard the title track there, and before that, an alternate take of Luminous Monolith. Top to set off, Sam Rivers on tenor, Jackie Byard, piano, Ron Carter, bass, Tony Williams, drums, and uh, we heard Stephen Bernstein and Jason Moran speaking in there as well on the subject of, of Sam's time in Boston. You know, we were talking about a little bit about this off air about how how strong Sam's sound was right out of the gate. And you know, I guess presumably all that all that period in Boston with with working with Tony and and, and Jackie, you know, really helped uh, sort of crystallize that. He'd been a working professional for twenty years by then. You know, from right. that, from those Navy. Uh, experiences with Jimmy Witherspoon till then that's 20 years of his life you know? yeah right and uh, quite educated you know formally and informally so yeah you had a lot of experience there with Jimmy Witherspoon and playing with T-Bone Walker and mm-hmm. um, I mean I'm sure you know his musicianship was even informed by all these other things that he did he played viola at uh, Boston Conservatory I'll see. he said he yeah. played in the symphony he played the piano you know and he wrote these uh like we were talking about the song poem gig. I mean, he knew music from so many angles. He was a writer and a player who really knew his stuff. But we were talking about some of the tenor sax uh, originality and perhaps influences. Yeah, what do you? What do you, you guys mentioned some some tenor players. I mean, Dexter's name came up, and well, listening to that, the tone reminded me of of Dexter. Um, mm-hmm. Although his his sense of swing is a little more on top. A little more driving, yeah, right, right. But and and a lot of sixteenth notes, but not like Coltrane exactly. I mean, he really had an original approach to uh, to everything, every every aspect of music, harmony, you know, um, time, the, it, the the intervals in his lines, you know, those those wide intervals, and just uh, it's such an he said was such an original. He said, uh, I. I guess the second time I met him was that he was doing the clinic at, uh, in a small hall at Berkeley in the mid-'80s, and he played some tunes with uh, Bruce Gertz on bass and John Damien on guitar. And then he answered questions, and, and one of the students asked him about his originality, and he said that, you know, I transcribed Charlie Parker from 78s just like everybody else in the 40s, but I didn't memorize those solos and make those by my vocabulary. I wanted to figure out what he was doing and then come up with my own language. And he said, I filled notebooks with exercises that were in fives and sevens, quintuplets, and, you know, trying to avoid uh, both the rhythmic and the pitch vocabulary of Charlie Parker and come up with his own way of things that made sense harmonically but wouldn't sound like that. Oh, that's incredible. And, uh, yeah, that's one way to do it. It's very, it's you know, he's so, so such a prolific guy and so energetic. I can imagine him doing that as a young man. Oh, he's so intellectual, too. Yeah. I mean, that that sounds just like something he would do. To, to, to The rigor, the intellectual rigor of actually creating your own exercises just, so, you know, in order to create your own vocabulary. And as Alan says, the sheer energy the guy had. I mean, he was yeah, sure. he was like an electric wire. I mean, he was yeah. one skinny, wired up dude you know and yeah and you hear that in the music too you know it's all you know his 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 body and his physicality is in the, is in the music totally and you know when he performed you know he moved he danced kind of you know he would sing and make strange sounds at at the, the you know and and just pull the whole band into just howling you know, it was like a full body experience. You yeah, know, there was nothing holding him back at all. <laughs> yes, yeah. in his well into his eighties. Um, so just imagining him at you know twenty five, okay. figuring that stuff out. And he had that he had the, uh, that amazing, sh- amazingly large shaped cranium. You know, he had this 
very distinctive head shape. And I remember seeing him at um, the ICA, uh, the New England Conservatory Big Band, about two, three years ago, last time I saw him. Yeah. And he was, you know, ailing, I think, or just getting weaker. And and his body, which had always been thin and wiry and muscular, was sort of fading away. But his head, of course, you know, was as big as ever. And, it, and all I could think of when seeing him standing there was that his head was like a balloon when his body was was like kind of dangling from it. Like, mm, like, like he was, his body was sort of disappearing, but that incredible mind was still, still there. Still, he forceful. was still riding all the way up to the end, you know? Was, I believe yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was talking with, with Stephen Bernstein, who we heard there a little bit about there, and he, he mentioned to me, I didn't know about this, but he mentioned there was a, an earlier recording, which, which we talked about, you mentioned off air, it was, was a, a Tad Dameron date in 1961. I want to play a little bit of that. It was re-released in the 90s on a Blue Note comp called The Lost Sessions. And I guess this was like a bunch of unreleased takes and where Blue Note re-released them. Yeah, I don't think anything from this uh, particular Tad Dameron session was uh, put together, on a, at least not as a whole album. Hmm. Unfortunately, because it's great music, with, and it features Sam pretty prominently, but it's available now. And a, and a Sam composition called The Elder Speaks. I really love this piece, but the funny thing we were talking about off-air, it's very atypical of Sam. Actually, the, the, the composition itself is um, sort of gives you an idea of what he was doing in Boston, maybe write, what, what his writing was in, in terms of his, his compositional yeah. um, technique in Boston. And it's a beautiful composition. It's kind of a soul jazz thing going on here. Um, I wonder if Tad was involved at all in the arrangement for this, or if it's all Sam's chart. I think it's Sam's chart because there, there's a Sam piece, and then the rest of it are all the rest of the pieces on on here are all Tad Tad pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, it's five horns and a rhythm section, so it gives you some insight into how Sam arranged and how he heard voicings. And I'd, I'd heard before that Sam had written a whole book of. Um, uh, uh, in in Boston, like a forty fifty tunes in this vein, hmm. but it never actually recorded them. Well, that it could very well be what he was talking about to Ed Michelle about. He had a, had a book like Birth of the Cool because this has a French horn in it, and it's uh, you know I, I hear a Birth of the Cool sex. thing in here. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We got uh, Donald Byrd uh, solo on trumpet, Curtis Fuller, um, then Sam, and uh, Paul Chambers on bass, Philly Joe Jones on drums. The Elder speaks. This is a composition by Sam Rivers. Tad Dameron, date 
Alan Berg, Curtis Fuller, Julius Walken, Sam, Cecil Payne, Pat Damron, Paul Chambers, and Phil Joe Jones. Now, the, the tune that's called The Elder Speaks, that's his tune, he really plays like traditional tenor, like almost like Gene Ammons. And then there's one phrase where he kind of does this little thing, you go, oh, it's Sam. But then there's another tune that he solos on, which is a regular Tad Damron tune, and it sounds just like Sam. I mean, it's already those phrases that you know that Sam plays. The thing is, it wasn't that Sam didn't play licks. He didn't play anybody else's licks. He only played his own licks. Sam was that kind of guy who said, okay, I'm going to create my own language. And it was obvious, like, even at that stage, and here he is playing with Philly Joe Jones and Paul Chambers. I think Sam was, is very, was very scientific about about doing that, about creating, making sure that he wasn't using those phrases that everybody knew. I'm Julian Priester, trombonist, uh, composer, educator. Sam is a consummate artist. His performance on his instruments, his compositions, you know, are, are not just unique. They're so musical. His ideas are, are not to be ignored. There was a lot of Charlie Parker clones out there, and I felt really sorry for the saxophone players of that era because you couldn't escape. If you didn't sound like Charlie Parker, then nobody paid you any attention. If you did sound like Charlie Parker, nobody paid you any attention. It's not an easy feat, you know, when you really have to isolate yourself, isolate your ear, and uh, be determined uh, uh, to stick to your, your own voice. You have to have your own unique sound. You have to, own, you know, you have, to have a, a voice that's identifiable. Like the Duke Ellington's. When you hear a Duke Ellington recording, you know right off the bat who that is. And, and Sam Rivers falls into that category. What's up? I'm Steve Coleman. I play alto saxophone primarily, other instruments, occasionally soprano, different other saxophones. And I'm a composer. I have my own group. That's what I do. There was a lot happening. You know, I mean, the water was really boiling. There were a lot of really strong musicians on the set. And there were a lot of guys putting together their vision. I mean, you had Ornette Coleman. You had Coltrane. You had, you know, just so many people doing different things, you know. And a lot of these things were really strong. And so with a lot of musicians, they got swept up in these different camps. You know, they might be following Charlie Parker still, or they might be following Lenny Tristano or Coltrane or Miles or, you know, I mean, you know, because all these guys were strong and there was a lot there to follow and everything. Sam wasn't one of those people. You know, Sam told me personally that he was always concerned right from the beginning with finding his own way. And so that's what he was doing. He was finding his own way. And so right from the beginning, and he's not the only one like this. I mean, I think Charlie Parker was like this. But right from the beginning, he, even though he knew these people personally, he was concerned with, you know, how do I want to do this and what do I want to say with this, with this music? And so I won't say that what you heard with his early recordings was fully formed. I mean, because everybody's always still growing and everything. But you could tell right away that that was his focus. His focus was that, I'm going to create my own environment, my own language, whatever, to express what I, I say. See, I can express what I have to say in somebody else's language. I don't have to create my own language. I can express what I have to say in Charlie Parker's language, like somebody like Lou Donaldson does that, for example, you know, or whatever. And the majority of musicians probably do that. It's much more difficult to do what Sam was doing because he's creating the vocabulary inside of which he's expressing his own ideas. And that's really hard to do, especially in the face of other strong musicians who are doing something similar. I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to ignore everybody else, but it does mean that you have to pay a lot of attention to what's going on inside, what's coming from yourself and everything. And that takes a lot of courage because, I mean, you're opening yourself up to a lot of criticism because people get criticized for sounding different or for being different, period. Thank you. 
You're listening to WZBC 90.3 FM. We're broadcasting a special program on the work of Sam Rivers that was Dance of the Tripedal from Sam's second Blue Note recording as a leader, Contours, 1964. Sam on tenor, Freddie Hubbard on trumpet, Herbie Hancock piano, Ron Carter bass, Joe Chambers drums. And before that was the Sam composition, The Elder Speaks, from a rare, um, previously unreleased Tad Dameron date, 1961. Stephen Bernstein, Julian Priester, Steve Coleman in there speaking as well. So really interesting. We were just talking about off-air how... Uh, much of a di- if you listen to Fuchsia Swing Song and then you listen to Contours, you definitely hear a, a, a big difference in terms of, of the direction. You know, sort of you, know, you can almost imagine him getting his foot in the door. You know, with the with the early 1950s uh, writing, and then here, this is definitely this this to me is 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 more in the direction of where we see Sam heading. You know, and definitely in terms of the big band writing. Yeah, and I don't know the exact chronology, but we were just talking about how the Blue Note label might have been, you know, was in the process of becoming a little more hospitable to some of these more experimental forms and sounds through Andrew Hill's records, and uh, some of which I, I think did fairly well in terms of reaching an audience in those days. Cecil Taylor unit structures. 65, 66, you know. Yes, that's right. Got yeah. more out. <laughs> Don Cherry. Uh, right. Symphony for Improvisers oh, right, is about yeah. as far out as yeah, they went. Yeah. Complete Communion was a 65, too. Mm-hmm. 65 was a big year at Blue Note and in the world. But they, they, you know, I've always wanted to look at like Rudy Van Gelder's recording log or his studio log from that year because so many incredible records came out of that label alone, not to mention Impulse, which he was also recording and right at the same time. Right. Well, let's listen to another uh, Sam Rivers piece, and we're going to go to uh, a record originally released as Involution, and later it was released as Dimensions and under the title Dimensions and Extensions. Here, you hear Sam writing for Four Horns. And I, I like this track uh, in comparison to the Rivby Orchestra work because you can hear connections to that writing in terms of the voicings and also the backgrounds behind the solos because when we get to the Rivby Orchestra, of course, Sam's, Sam's background writing was, was um, um, really interesting. And you, you kind of hear Sam, the way Sam would improvise in the backgrounds. Um, so I like, I like this, this particular track is called uh, Pion. And it's uh, it's uh, Sam Rivers soprano, Donald Byrd trumpet, Julian Priester trombone, James Spalding alto, um, Cecil McBee bass, and Steve Ellington drums, and no piano here. So uh, this is 1967. Dimensions and extensions. Thank <laughs> you. 
WZBC 90.3 Boston College. We're listening to the music of Sam Rivers. That was Pion, a piece from Dimensions and Extensions, uh, originally released in 1967. Sam Rivers there uh, with Donald Byrd, Julian Priester, James Spalding. I, t- I spoke with Julian Priester briefly um, about that uh, about that recording. Let's, let's listen to let's listen to Julian Priester here on the subject of, of that recording. The recording itself stands out in my in my memory. Uh, of course, I was already familiar with his work um, at that time. He was already sort of a legendary figure uh, because of his uniqueness. Uh, there's the musician, and then there's the artist. There's only two categories in, in, in jazz, and Sam falls into that second category. He's a jazz artist, which makes him special. You know, Sam's not the commercial musician. You don't find him on, on any and every recording. You know, all of his recording works are, are statements, they're artistic statements. I, I recognized that even before I actually had an opportunity to perform with him at the recording studio. It's one of his uh, outstanding works. And I think you, you mentioned, or one of you mentioned, that uh, this is his first, his debut on a soprano. Yeah, to my knowledge, I don't think there's anything recorded mm-hmm. before this of him on soprano. Right, you want to talk about his his voice on soprano? That was kind of an interesting yeah. comment there. Well, uh, one thing that I used to um, think about his soprano playing when I heard him live particularly was that he had this kind of almost crazy Irish jig thing going on in his soprano playing. Um, and uh, I, I don't know how to exp- describe it any closer than that. It might have something to do with the kind of the ergonomic way that he would would play uh on saxophone you can you just by sort of sweeping your fingers up and down it, it, it and everybody does that you know everybody since Coltrane does that in one way or another but he really mm-hmm. harnessed that into an interesting set of patterns that pumping on the horn thing that mm-hmm. everybody does and and I think something about like like the what's the little um flute that Irish Flute, um, what do they call it? The penny whistle. Penny whistle. Thank yeah. you. There's they, there's a pumping kind of thing on that too, mm-hmm. and there was I there was a similarity there that struck me. Maybe I was the only one. I hear that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of a it's. I don't think he's imitating Coltrane. You know, very very little. So much less than. I mean, he was older than Coltrane, which I think is a really significant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, it's very it's yeah. very hard to be influenced by people younger than oneself in some weird. Freudian way or something, <laughs> but, except, uh, except your children. Well, well yeah, I, I don't. Right. I don't really mean that, but I guess I mean that there is something significant. There's a threshold there, um, where you know he might feel like, hey, I don't have to be sort of a subservient worshiper of this guy. I'm his contemporary, and I'm actually his senior a little bit. Um, I don't know. I'm just putting words into his mouth. But one thing, technically, I kind of notice is he plays like on that track. He he plays a lot of things that are diatonic. They're in one scale, but they don't sound like it because they're so wild intervallically. I mean, like he's all over the place playing, you know, odd combinations of notes. But but a lot of the notes, not all, are in one key. Interesting. And, um, yeah. You know, it's a kind of modal purity. I thought about Jimmy Jufri, and I mean, they don't sound anything alike. But Jimmy Jufri carved out an original sound on soprano and did a lot of stuff with no piano that was modal yet weird and different mm-hmm. at around right. the same time yeah. you know yeah that's yeah. really interesting yeah. yeah and was around the same age too i mean right. older than coltrane yeah a really distinctive uh, soprano sound just like you you know just a very distinctive tenor sound as well mm-hmm. so we should talk about the the next sort of uh, period of sam's uh musical career moving to new york and around 64 and from what I understand, he started using a middle school for rehearsals when he first moved there. This is prior to opening up Studio Rivby in 1972, uh, which was at 24 Bond Street in Soho. Now, Studio Rivby was arguably the central location for the, the so-called loft uh, scene of the 1970s. And that, that building, what I read was that the building was owned by Robert De Niro's mother and the photographer Robert Maplethorpe um, lived in the building as well. Mm. So it's kind of interesting. You think of the <laughs> 1970s New York, you know. <laughs> well, that was a funky neighborhood then. It, it, it really got gentrified seriously in the 80s. Um, but there was also right down the block from Studio Rivby was Jolie Wilson's. Um, ladies Fort. The Ladies Fort. The that ladies was, num- Fort. I think, number two Bond Street. So it was a pretty happening little street. Wow. And uh, the Time Cafe um, – Later on, which where the Mingus Big Band got its start was a block or 
was right in, in almost on the same block. And then there was a big Tower Records later on the other side of the same block. So, it, so and the public theater is sort of around the corner. So it, that that whole neighborhood sort of progressed in yeah. from like musician owned lofts to record stores to now who knows what's there. Yeah, know? the public theater you mentioned. Okay, so that that kind of gives an image. I know where that is, so I know I I understand what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, there were the other places that I know about that were happening around the same time where Ornette Coleman had uh, artists. Uh, what was it called? Artist House. Artist House on, on Prince Street. Street. Prince Street. Yeah. And Rashid Ali had his place on uh, Green Street, Green Seventy Seven Green Street, which was his house, you know, right up to his death a couple of years ago. Uh, recording studio in the basement, the nightclub on the first floor wasn't really a loft, and some apartments upstairs where he lived. And sort of a, a storefront, tenant. yeah, yeah, sort of a storefront, but that, yeah, Ali's Alley. But these musician-owned spaces. But Sam was he was the king of all of these. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> and and it was the number one place that was written about and recorded. Five uh, LPs were made, Wildflowers series, mm. um, right in his loft during a festival, and all released. And you know, they I found them in Phoenix, so they must have been widely distributed. They were on. <laughs> yeah, what label were they on? They they made it pretty far. Uh, well, they were eventually re-released on on Knit Media. Yeah, yeah, in the nineties, but I don't as remember LPs. what label it was in the. Oh, it'll come back to me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, we'll have to look that up. And that, that was such a great place because the, the Studio Rivby was one of those old-fashioned New York storefronts that was um, – you walked in and it was sort of two stories high, but there was a kind of a balcony in the back. It, it must have been some kind of retail space at a certain point. And Sam's family lived somewhere in the back or in the t- up on the balcony or – but, you know, his kids were always running around and, and – B was always feeding somebody. She was like, would bring out pots of food for the audience or the musicians. It was just, it was a real really, family affair there. It was yeah. a real family affair. And, but the level of the musicians and the musicianship and the creativity there was just off the charts. Um, I remember hearing Sam with Big Band there several times, including on New Year's Eve, which would probably be 76 into 77, maybe. Mm. And the Big Band was, I, I couldn't, I could just make up a list now, but. You know, twenty people whose names you would know. I mean, wow. just rows of everybody, an incredible improviser, and all harnessed together under you know his his uh, leadership, and you know, somewhat sedated by the rice and beans coming from B's kitchen. <laughs> you know, what one, one yeah. thing I I noticed about the the kind of jazz avant garde, if you can call it that, and, and the free jazz movement is it could be a little bit cliquish because that that. That umbrella really uh, covers a lot of very distinct ways of making music that aren't actually totally compatible. You know, the way Cecil Taylor worked is not the same way that Ornette Coleman worked, and so on. And so that the interactions between those scenes could be a little tentative and few and far between, and some of them more connected than others. But Studio Rivby and the loft scene is a place where you'd see the AACM and the St. Louis people like Julia Sempill playing with people who had played with Cecil Taylor or, or Nick Coleman. It was a much more of a mixing place, like a safe zone for everybody to get together in every possible combination. And you can see that on those wildflowers yeah, those, lineups, that, you know, people who, who are playing together. It was the intersection of a lot of different different scenes. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. yeah. yeah, I wish I could remember everybody who was in this big band, but it was like Dave Holland and Barry Altschul, but also George Lewis and J.D. Perrin and Joseph Bowie and... Uh, right. You know that it was right just a real cross section. Who's who of yeah, yeah. Of, the, of that scene? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is uh, or we're we're talking about the the early 1970s here and late 1960s, and it wasn't until the early 1970s that we started hearing uh, Sam as a leader uh, playing free improvisation. Although he was of course doing free playing free improvised uh, in Boston, even with Tony, we know that. Um, um, so let's play a live recording here, 1973. This is. Uh, during the loft scene era, um, this is actually a live recording at Yale uh, featuring um, Sam on piano. So this is this will get to hear Sam's mastery of the piano here. Barry Altschul on drums, Cecil McBee on bass. From the record Hughes, this is the piece Ivory Black.
I play, uh, I perform primarily on the drums, but I also play piano, which I compose with. I met Sam, I think it was 1963, 1964, a mutual friend, a bass player by the name of Jimmy Stevenson, got us together, and we actually played uh, the October Revolution in jazz as a trio together. And that was pretty much the first time I started to have contact with Sam. I was kind of there pretty much at the beginning of Studio Rivby. At one time, it was just the upstairs. And I, I know it from then. And that's when the family lived upstairs and, uh, and on weekends made a space for concerts. Then the downstairs was, uh, was like a cellar, you know. And so that was fixed up somewhat, and uh, the concert started to be held down downstairs. The living was done upstairs, and then concerts were able to be performed more than on the weekends. Uh, so it became kind of a, almost a full-time venue. Uh, all kinds of uh, st uh, styles of, of music were performed there. Actually, the, it started off as as one of the only places and then a whole bunch of places came up around there and became the loft scene yeah i mean there was and it was a big family and the family was run like an african village all the adults who was part of sam's let's say extended family and that was many musicians i mean many friends and so on uh were responsible for you know he had five children and grandchildren and all kinds of, you know, it was a, a real family affair there. So the adults were kind of responsible to the ch for the children, to, and the children uh, were responsible for the to the adults. They listened to the adults. Matter of fact, Monique, uh, one of Sam's daughters, I spoke to her on the phone recently, and and she said she still considers me like a stepfather, you know, because we all had a hand in bringing up the kids as well as they were helped with the business. You know, they served the, the juices and the sodas or uh, stayed at the door to collect the money and uh, whatever. It was a family of business. <laughs> 
Dave Holland here. Uh, I'm a bassist and uh, also play cello um, and bass guitar, which is my first instrument. I'm a composer as well. I would like to just say uh, what a great mentor he was to so many of the young musicians that were in New York uh, during the 70s, and it was symbolized, of course, by Rivby and his family. I want to speak about B. Rivers, who was a huge presence in his life and in the life of the people that were around Sam. That was his wife, of course, and his family, his daughters, who all took part in making that work at Rivby. They'd be there uh, taking care of the people that were coming in, uh, making sure the place was together for the concerts and, you know, and huge sacrifices too that the family made. I mean, uh, you know, there were times when I'd go to Rivby and there'd be very little furniture there and it'd be in the, in the pawn shop uh, while they were waiting for uh, Sam to get the checks, the grant checks, so that he could pay the next series that was coming up at Ripley. And so there was a huge family effort that the, 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 the Rivers family made. And there was nowhere for us to play. The clubs were only booking more traditional things or, or so-called fusion music. So, you know, the loft scene sprung up and, and Sam had one of the really important centers that allowed us places to rehearse places to perform, a place where projects could be developed, and so on. My name is Warren Smith, Warren I. Smith, uh, so a lot of people call me Wiss, the initials. Uh, I'm a percussionist. I'm originally from Chicago. I actually uh, uh, met Sam around 1961 or 62 when he came to New York from Boston, uh, so these were open spaces that artists were taking advantage of because that was before the um, real estate market went crazy and, and all the prices rose up. Factory places or, or um, sweatshops, which was the one I got it. It had been, uh, you know, a garment district place where there were a lot of sewing machines and things. You know, it's just an ordinary brownstone building, but. Or oh, there must have been about 15 or 20 places that we actually started them as rehearsal spaces where we could develop our own music. Nightclubs, you know, the Village Vanguard and places like that were not uh, encouraging us to come in and use their facilities and, and offer us, uh, you know, some, you know, you either have to work off the door or whatever. And if you're going to do that, you might as well work for yourself. So, um, all of us were doing this, and uh, we were using each other's spaces and collaborating with each other. In the early 70s, we started organizing concerts. Jolie Wilson had a studio right down the street from Sam's studio, Rivby, and um, there were many others. Mike Morganelli had the Jazz Forum, and uh, James Du Bois had Studio We, and there must have been more than a dozen of them. And uh, we were completely ignored by... by um, the summer events like the annual Newport Jazz Festival, which had moved to New York. So um, in 1972, we organized a musician's collective and uh, had our own independent uh, jazz festival. <laughs> Thank you. 
WZBC 90.3 FM. That was uh, Sam Rivers and the piece Mauve from the record Hughes. Richard Davis, bass, Warren Smith, drums, uh, and vibes. And the piece before that was Ivory Black, recorded live at Yale with Sam on piano. Cecil McBee on bass, Barry Altschul on drums, and uh, Barry, Dave Holland, and Warren Smith speaking about the the New York loft scene in the, in the 1970s, in particular, uh, 